It's time. It's time for the Hadit.com radio show. Hadit.com radio is an in-depth look at all things VA. If you need help with the VA, log on to Hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Gerald Cook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're here today with our uh, uh, co-host, Jay Basser. And uh, today, uh, and also Stretch, our technician down there in Arkansas. And uh, today our guest speaker, uh, this 26th day of February 2014, is uh, John Rossi. And... Uh, John, uh, he he kind of heads up the Blue Water Navy uh, bats. Uh, they're trying to get some some wrongs put right, and hopefully they'll get the job done. And uh, let's see, uh, any of you have any call-in uh, uh, questions or comments? Please call in at three four seven. Two three seven four eight one nine. That call-in number once again is three four seven two three seven four eight one nine. If you have a question, we'll we'll be only too happy to address it. And uh, uh, John, how are you doing today? Well, it's. Uh pretty early morning out here in Denver, but uh, I'm I'm up and around, so... I know, that's good. You get to see the sun come up today. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't been done for a while, but uh, at any rate, yeah, we're, uh, we're about 20 degrees, dusting of snow, and uh, it's a nice Denver day. Yeah. Well, it's 18 here. It started out about 12 this morning. And uh, I was looking out at sun shining, but I was looking out while ago and it was snowing. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of weird, sun shining and snowing. I like to see the sunshine, but don't care much for the snow. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of folks in this country, especially on the east, that are saying the same thing. You bet they are. Uh Boy, I tell you, I feel sorry for them. And, uh, their heat bills are just, I guess, out of sight. But anyway, uh, how's the Blue Water Navy doing here, John? I, I know you, you got some legislation you're working on, and uh, hopefully that'll come on through. Um, yeah, actually, there's some interesting things going on. Today and yesterday, uh, yesterday Bernie Sanders, a uh, senator who heads up the Committee for the Veteran Affairs in the Senate, uh, kicked off a uh, hearing that will look into a number of bills uh, that go along with the um, health overhaul for the VA system. Uh, This morning, the House and Senate uh, Veteran Committee is, <clears throat> excuse me, holding a, a joint session. They're looking at a whole handful of bills. Um, most of them, uh, well, a lot of them, are focused on the um, health care itself. But there will be a lot of uh, amendments and writers to this bill that will be introduced over the course of the next day or maybe two days, depends how long it takes them to to argue it out. When uh, Senator Sanders introduced it yesterday, he begged everybody to um, please keep the um, subjects and amendments uh, for this bill specifically related to veterans and veteran health care. Um, that was pretty quickly uh, set aside when uh, uh, Senator Burr essentially said, well, he invites everybody to bring any bill that they've got and stick it on this one because uh, he don't always get a chance to introduce their bills. So there will be some arguing and and whatnot. One of the things that we learned yesterday was that uh, uh, our uh, Senate uh, side of of our 
bill, the, the bill that's in the House is H.R. 543, and it's uh, uh, targeted to amend the um, the uh, Agent Orange Act of 1991 or, or to amend the, the current uh, regulations that, that address that to reinstate the members of the Navy and Marines uh, and anybody else that was on board ship that uh, happened to have been exposed to the Agent Orange dioxin while they were at sea, and uh, it will add them back into the veterans who are eligible for presumptive exposure to Agent Orange. Um, And there are a lot of those. Uh, We heard yesterday that uh, Senator Gillibrand is intending to introduce on this latest bill that uh, Senator Sanders is is now bringing to the floor, um, the Senate version of uh, what uh, H.R. 543 does. So we're anxious to see if that actually does get introduced and where it goes from there. Well, I mean, it uh, sounds like it's about as good as opportunity as you guys have had or any. Uh, I mean, uh, as far as the veterans, there's not been much going on to try, you know, help help the veterans. So if this bill goes through, it looks like it might be of some aid to uh, quite a few veterans, let's hope. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty all-encompassing uh, approach right now for, for what uh, they're doing in the Senate, and uh, it's going to include some things that address the um, backlog. It's going to address some things that uh, directly impact the things like dental care. Uh, it's going to impact things that uh, have to do directly with the types and kinds of medical services that uh, the VA healthcare system is providing. So it uh, it should let loose a logjam of, of several of the, of the veteran-related legislations that have been sitting and pending in both the House and the Senate. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully this will help the Blue Water Navy. Um, I would... I'd like to think there's something in there for the 112 Shad veterans, but I suspect it's not. Uh, maybe I might give him a call this afternoon. <laughs> well, it wouldn't hurt. I think that now is the time that um, that any input anyone's got for the the um, legislations that they're trying to back would be a good time to get a hold of Bernie Sanders' office. Um, Senator Sanders uh, being, the, like I say, the, the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee and uh, just let him know that there's something you want to hear him talk about. Yeah. Uh, that would be a good idea. At any rate, uh, you know, we were talking the other day and we... Uh, maybe stumbled on something. I think you'd uh, probably recognized it before I did. Some of these different uh, uh, things that uh, show up on veterans that uh, probably didn't uh, recognize that it could be service-related. And one of them was losing hair off your leg. And I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, you mentioned uh, you thought most uh, Agent Orange veterans had had lost the hair, uh, up, at least up to their knees or close to it, and uh, that shows up when, especially if they're around the swimming pools. Well, that's that's where you spot them anyway. But uh, yeah, there seems to be a uh, a number of. Uh, unofficial or unofficially non-recognized symptoms that a lot of the guys who have had uh, exposure to dioxin uh, tend to all have in common. Um, 
couple examples, like you mentioned, the uh, loss of the hair on the legs. Um, a lot of veterans who had a healthy dose of dioxin uh, have lost their teeth, and, uh, and we're talking about uh, when they're probably late 20s and 30 years old. Uh, that's when their that's when their teeth started deteriorating. Um, many of the veterans that uh, have the exposure also have um, uh, gastrointestinal problems. Uh, that includes, uh, as far as the seriousness of, of an irritable bowel syndrome, all the way uh, back to say lactose intolerance. Um, there's yeah, a third would uh, fall into that, wouldn't it? I I suppose it would. Yeah. Yeah, I would uh, think it would. I've I've seen, uh, especially on added, uh, where a lot of veterans seem to have the GERD and, and uh, irritable bowel syndrome. So uh, there's something that you know uh, that has caused that. And I suspect it's some sort of exposure to something. Yeah, and 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 to specifically say it's exposure to dioxin, I guess I really don't know that. But it, uh, no. the uh, statistics of the guys that I work with that uh, that do have problems from Vietnam, those tend to be uh, pretty well shared uh, among the group um, to a larger extent than than one would imagine. Uh-huh. Uh, I, so just uh, just some common traits that, uh, and there are six or eight additional ones that aren't coming to mind right now. But uh, but there just seems to be a family of these additional uh, problems that everybody shares that don't show up on anything that uh, has been acknowledged as uh, uh, as typical um, typically related to Vietnam era veterans. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that it's, it's on their record that they've uh, that they've noticed these kind of things, but uh, but no one is is taking the leap to say, oh gee, a large percentage of the Vietnam veterans have this. Maybe there's something that we need to look into. I doubt if they ever will do that, but uh, but we've seen these things, uh, these other symptoms uh, on a pretty regular basis. Well, you don't realize it till you get to speaking to a lot of different veterans, uh, you know, like we do. Uh, especially uh, things like your, I, I've heard, I don't know how many veterans uh, talk about their teeth starting to fall out or, you know, and uh, which mine did. I had to get all mine pulled uh, because they were falling out. Uh I think it's exposure now, whether it's exposure uh, exclusively to Agent Orange or or I think it's just uh, exposure in general. I mean, you know, you're exposed to so many different items when you're in the service. It's, it's hard to say, uh, pin it down to one particular uh, uh, agent, especially after so many years. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true, and I think that the just serving in the armed forces um, is a is a hazardous thing to begin with. Um, they're they're probably getting a little better. I hope that they are. But uh, when the days you and I were in, there wasn't much control over what we now call the toxins and and various solvents that were um, um, having pretty negative health effects on us. Uh, that, the uh, decreasers and cleaners and and things like that, but uh, yeah, it's uh, I anybody who goes uh, through the through their service um, probably comes out uh, with a few things that uh, that they ran into, uh, and it's he um, just sort of suck it up, and that was part of the that was part of the deal. Yeah. Uh... And it could be, you know, quite a few years down the road, 10, 15, 20 years down the road before you start uh, realizing some of these things. And by then, you, uh, 
you don't remember a lot of different jobs you've had in the service. I know we had uh, always had paint details. That was something. Uh, painted everything. If it didn't move, you painted it. If it did move, you painted it anyway. That's <laughs> yeah. That's what happened. Um, there, there's an interesting um, um, things I've uh, not I've, a lot of people other than me have noticed it, but uh, take for instance the um, uh, Camp Lejeune uh, contaminated water situation. Uh, there's uh, been several chemicals that are identified as being the uh, contaminants in the water at uh, at Camp Lejeune over a two or three decade period, and uh, and some of those include uh, uh, benzene, um, uh, tetrachloral ethylene TCE. <clears throat> that's a that's a cleaner and decreaser. Uh-huh. Uh huh. PCE. Um, and, and chemicals like that, and right now they're providing health care for people who had uh, trace elements of those uh, chemicals in the water, uh, and has and that has caused some health problems for them. So now they're receiving health care and and in some cases compensation for that. Um, there were a lot of individuals in the in the service who essentially would have a job that required a lot of cleaning of things, a decreasing and such like that, and and uh, we just simply poured TCE onto a rag and started wiping. Uh, yeah. So it was uh, full strength um, exposure when we were in the service, and, and now we have a group that's getting compensated for uh, trace element uh levels of, of that same chemical it's it's very possible that uh, that dioxins being blamed for too many things uh, because these chemicals have the capability of uh, of causing some of the same types of illnesses that that dioxin causes also so um, we may be learning more about uh, what types of toxins that uh, we ran into while we were in the service, um, but that that up to this point in time has not uh, has not changed any medical opinions or uh, certainly none of the VA regulations on uh, uh, on recognizing those. Uh, no, it hasn't, and and you're right. Uh, we were exposed to so many different toxins. It's hard to nail it down uh, uh, exactly what. I know if you worked around the motor pool, you were certainly uh, exposed to it. If you uh, everything from diesel fuel to uh, solvents of one sort or another, they had all different kinds. And same way if you, you were Painting in the barracks. I think they had that old lead paint back then, didn't they? And I think that's all they had back then. Yeah, right. Uh, lead paint used spirits in it, or some some kind of thinner, uh, paint thinner, or lacquer thinner, or whatever you could find laying around, and thin it down. Uh, so. The list goes on and on and on. Like you say, I, I, I think herbicides get blamed for a lot, but it, it uh, uh, for whatever reason, it looked like uh, to me they would address some of these other uh, agents uh, that were available to be exposed to, you know. However, they don't seem to want to. No, I think the uh, the requirement or the, the drive to look for answers is not one of the things that's driving the system right now. Uh, they have too many answers uh, and too many unanswered questions. So yeah, uh, they'll they'll stick with what they found out 
to date and uh, and fit whatever they can into that. You know, and to be cooped up on a ship, uh, uh, you know, you're down in a ship and they're doing a lot of painting and stuff. My land, you're breathing that stuff in right and left. I mean, there's no way to avoid exposure. Well, that's that's true, and and that's whether you're painting or not. Um, of course, anybody anybody back in that era who was painting anything was was exposed to uh, potentially. But what we're talking about is uh, instead of a, a gallon can of paint, we're talking about a five or ten gallon paint uh, or a gallon uh, can of paint, and, and it was just. Uh, Expanded so many times because of the of the consistency of uh, continuously redoing things and and the the massive scale. So the the elements were the same as, as anybody painting their house, but it was probably ten ten times the volume, and uh, and it was pretty continuous too. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was, but. Uh, that's a weird thing that people uh, start noticing uh, years down the road, and after you get to talking to other veterans, you know, you you yourself, it, it, you don't think much about it, but when you start talking to other veterans, and they say, yeah, this uh, happened to me, and that's happening to me, and you say, wait a minute, that's happening to me, too. <laughs> Yeah, that always is a surprise. Uh, I think uh, the VA has not been good in doing outreach programs to say, uh, uh, hey, uh, veterans, whether they're current or, or in the past, uh, there are some things that you need to look for, for in your own health because we found and identified some things that you ran into in the service that could be causing some health problems. Um it's uh, it's usually the veteran saying, "Well, all gone, you know, and I, I drew a bad hand in, in health, uh, and so thus and such is happening to me." But uh, ten years later, or fifteen, or later, you find out uh, there is a a, a link, a, a relationship between the health problems they're having and some of the stuff that they had direct exposure to while they're in the service. And, you know, it does look like they could do some blood work or uh, uh, old marrow test or something. I don't know where this stuff all settles in your body, uh, uh, whether it's your thyroid or uh, some different organ. Uh Somewhere you bound to have traces of some of these elements. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I think the problem facing there is that uh, just the tests themselves are, are uh, expensive, and, uh, and in terms of the cost of it, um, the VA is the VA is better off just waiting until the symptoms get to the point where um, they're an extreme health danger and uh, then they start making relationships between the two but uh, up until that point the veteran just uh, historically thinks well darn I'm, I'm stuck with this don't know what caused it but, uh, but yeah. here it is, I've got it uh, yeah that makes it hard on the veteran because like you say you don't know what caused it something did and, uh, of course, the VA always comes back and say, well, it's uh, the work you did in your public life there. Uh, where did you work at? A gas station or somewhere or chemical factory? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's a pretty typical approach for them. I think the one that uh, uh, I want to say I get a chuckle out of, it's, uh, it's gallows humor, but... Uh, um, a lot of the veterans, uh, especially naval veterans who are on the smaller ships, uh, have hearing problems. And uh, one of the ways that they determine whether or not you are a candidate for hearing loss based on your 
uh, rating, or, or that's the Navy's word for the, their MOS, uh, if they were a administrative person, uh, they would say, well, there's no reason to think that you were exposed to gunfire, but uh, as any destroyer that was on the gun line, um, it didn't matter. It didn't matter where you were. You you got the concussion and the and the bang, uh, whether you were in the gun mount or near the gun mount or or on the far end of the ship uh, in the other direction. How in the world could they muffle that down and that it wouldn't kill your ears? Well, I think the only way to do that is to put on some ear protection. Well, um, you'd have to have a, I mean, but it seemed like, oh, they would need them the size of a box. That's a heavy concussion coming out of them big guns, ain't it? Yeah, it sure is. There was a chart on uh, some of the, the DP decibel uh, impact of some of that stuff. I think a, a gun ends up in the 120 decibels, and and any anything over 80 decibels is is pretty harmful uh, to your hearing. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to um, it's hard to draw those conclusions and and say, uh, yep, without a doubt, that, that hearing loss came from just being on board the ship. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and of course, in the artillery, that's, that's the same thing. The guys who were loading and, and had direct uh, access to the gun itself, uh, that's pretty easy to get a, a hearing loss uh, acknowledgement from the VA, but if you were just simply in camp doing something else, uh, you you got that, uh, that decibel blast no matter where you were, but if your MOS said you were nowhere near the guns, uh, VA just says, well, you know, there's no reason that you would have you would have been injured by that. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, well, John, we need to take a little short break here. Uh and uh, pay the bills. We have a little commercial here that we can run. So we'll run it, and then we'll come right back. You're listening to the HadIt.com radio show. HadIt.com is veterans helping veterans. We leave no one behind, not on a jungle trail, not on a desert trail, and not on a paper trail. If you want any information about the VA, Log on to www.hadit.com. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if, if you have any uh, <coughs> questions or comments here uh, with John Rossi here and the Blue Water Navy, uh, feel free to call in. Our number, call-in number here is 347-237-237. 4819. Our call in number once again is 347 237 4819. And uh, feel free to, to call in uh, with any questions or comments. And don't forget uh, the Haddock website is uh, there to uh, help and assist veterans. Uh, with their claims process and anything else that might crop up that they can help you with. So uh, don't hesitate. Uh, come to Haddit, uh, com. Uh, John, uh, how many folks were, uh, do you have a halfway decent count? How many were involved with the Blue Water Navy? Um, there was a report that was provided to Senator Akaka several years ago um, uh, by the uh, Department of the Navy, and it ended up that what they did is they did a count of what ships were um, had earned the Vietnam Service Medal, which means uh, how many ships were in the theater combat. Uh, that list had uh, 713 ships on it. Uh, that included some that uh, just simply cut the corner of the of the area so that the crew uh, or the officers 
could uh, wear that particular ribbon um, and didn't necessarily mean they were involved in the in the naval operations or the campaigns. Uh, people get pretty angry when I suggest that, but uh, there is a small list of ships that we know weren't involved in, in the actual combat operations, but they're still on the list. Um, so the 713 ships is, is what uh, is, quote, officially uh, on record as, as the number of ships that participated at some point in time uh, with the, or within the theater of combat. Um, and they they keep adding more ships, don't they, as they run across them? Uh, it takes quite a bit to, you know, get them put on the list, uh, but, uh, well, no, no. We've we've got two different lists. You might be talking about one is the the list uh, that you first asked about, which was how many ships were there. Uh, there we're also building a list of how many ships that are are basically blue water ships that went inland, uh, uh-huh. crossed they crossed the geographic boundary and and went internal to the country, and those ships. Um, are are being listed also, and it changes the status of the crew from a uh, from not being covered under the presumption of exposure to uh, once you cross that line and, and are essentially in country, uh, you're no longer considered the Blue Water Navy. <clears throat> uh, you you're given the same presumption of exposure. Uh, that the uh, guys with boots on ground and the guys that operated within the river systems uh, have. So on that particular list, uh, the latest release, I think that uh, I'm going to take a shot from the hip here, there are about 280 or more ships listed there that at at some point in time either crossed the geographical boundaries and became inland water ships uh, or they... Uh, docked or sent uh, at least part of their crew ashore to uh, get supplies or or even heck some of them had ship parties on the beach so um, there's a um, starting to break down the, the distinctions between what what's called blue water and, and brown water and, and maybe it might be a uh, time to explain exactly what those terms mean. Uh, When the VA uses the term uh, Blue Water Navy, they're talking about vessels that were constructed to operate on the the deep oceans uh, and to survive the uh, various weather and uh, that they were self-sustaining in terms of being able to carry the uh, food, shelter, clothing that, that the uh, crew would need, as opposed to what they're calling brown water, uh, which indicates that the ship was in the internal river systems and canals uh, of the country. And uh, the distinction I think is makes the most sense is simply that a brown water ship is a, is a uh, river boat, and it's uh, not constructed to uh, head across the, the ocean on, on its own. Uh, it uh, is not um, put together in such a way that it's going to survive the storms and the, and the environment at sea. So the brown water ships are the ones that were uh, usually docked on the, on the inland waters and operated on the inland waters and, um, and not not specifically made to uh, to cross the oceans, and that's that's an easier way to to look at that distinction. Uh, it, it it was uh, while we were in the blue water, there were plenty of uh, offshore areas that had literally brown water because of the silt and stuff running off it. But if you weren't, if you didn't cross a line that came down the coast by entering the mouth of a river then you were still considered 
blue water, whether or not the, the water was colored blue or, or whether the water was full of mud. Hopefully that, that helps people make a distinction between what what uh, the definitions of blue water versus brown water is. Uh, yeah, there is a difference there. And uh, uh, I know that one of the main things, one of the main complaints was your water purifying systems, uh, especially on the the blue water was uh, it didn't uh, filter out the agents uh, that were being sprayed on the ground and they were trying to establish how far out the sea that that agent would drift uh, they knew that it was washing down into the ocean and uh, about did they ever come to any conclusion uh, how far out it might have went? Uh, all that's purely speculation at this point. Um, the, the traveling on the water surface is just one of uh, several ways that the exposure took place uh, because the uh, uh, sprayed, uh, the aerial spraying was done by the planes. Uh, they admit that at least 15% of it drifted off on the wind. Uh, how far did it drift? Um, see, no one took any measurements of anything during that time frame, and, and this is one of the conclusions of a couple of the IOM studies. Um, at this point in time, because nobody took any measurements uh, of how much dioxin was at a particular location during the war, um, there's no way to come back now, 40-plus years later, and say, well, this area uh, must have had a higher concentration than this other area. Therefore, the, the people who were in those areas had corresponding exposures. Um, one of the things the IOM said was they, they can't even give a quantitative measurement of exposure for anyone that had boots on ground or were on the inland water system. There's just, there's just no way to put a number to it. Uh, when they passed the Agent Orange Act of 91, they knew this was the case, and uh, that's why they said that the exposure to dioxin was done on a presumptive basis. If you were in the area of, of Vietnam, uh, then we presume that if you come down with uh, one of the diseases that we have related to dioxin, we presume that that was because you were exposed to the Agent Orange. And everything is based on the presumption and not on measurements of any sort. Uh, but uh, uh, Do you think I can get it, Gerald? Uh-huh. Can go I get ahead. in there for a minute? This is Stretch. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I have a little information to add from the, from the aircraft carriers. We, uh, John, we, uh, we used uh, Tulane and water whenever we were on, on, on bases to watch the aircraft. And we were at sea, water was uh, pretty scarce, so we used Turco. Turco is a product, it's like a waxy kind of uh, soap that we would clean the aircraft with. And also, I, I got another point you mentioned a while ago about the uh, noise level on the flight deck, and I have a chart from the Ranger, and uh, it's, it has a list of the different um, aircraft and the DB. Uh, whenever they were trapping an aircraft, whenever they were landing, it was 128 dB, the noise level. When they had a bolter, that's an aircraft that missed a wire and went over the ship, it was 120 to 125 dB. Touch and goes were 129 dB. Regular deck launches were 127 dB for at least 20 seconds. And I suspect they went longer than that. It's just 20 seconds on here, uh, compared to the uh, the noise level of the other uh, army um, ships. It was 
a multi-purpose vehicle as a 78 dB and uh, the noise level was pretty high on board the aircraft uh, so uh, that that has to do with the noise level. I have this chart and I'll post it in our uh, on Had It under this radio program. Um, John, we we didn't have water at sea. That we had to make it. We had three minute showers. We had to take. There was uh, you were allowed one minute in the water. You turned off the water. You soaked yourself down for a minute, and then for one minute you rinsed. And that's how uh, scarce the water was on board ship. So we didn't really have enough water to get this stuff and these agents off of our skin. So um, the the prevalence of it in our on our clothing and uh, on ourselves it was just there. It was nothing we could do. It was it's what we had to live with. And I just thought I would add that information to what you've already said, John. And that's that's good information, Stretch. Thanks for bringing that in. And, uh, yeah, so that was an example of, of the actual measurements that they could put on to uh, the decibel levels of, of noise. And, and, of course, the higher the decibel level, the, um, the louder the, the noise and the human ear is, is uh, pretty fragile. Uh, anything over about 70 or 80 dB is going to cause some harm. So Stretch was talking about things that were almost 125 or 130 decibels, and uh, that's that's something that's going to leave a, a lasting uh, impact on on some people's uh, hearing systems. Uh, the issue about the the water. Oh, go ahead. The average sailor would spend. I spent three years in this environment listening to these aircraft and didn't think much about it, but my hearing has been affected. I've been denied tinnitus, uh, so that's just uh, part of what goes along with being a sailor. I think we're kind of last on the list, but uh, this, this is not something that you just did for five minutes. This is something you did 12 hours a day for three years. So this is not uh, just... Uh, an occasional thing. This is something that uh, you lived with. I thought I'd add that too. Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, and when you were on your when you were done with your twelve hours, another shift went. So they were running twenty four hours a day. Um, yes. So depending on when you were where you were on the ship, you were you were listening to a lot of that noise all the time. Uh, yeah, those are uh, elements. Of being in the service uh, that the VA, I think, doesn't take into consideration, and they look for uh, show-me documentation that uh, that you, a particular veteran, uh, had noise exposure at a certain uh, time or from a certain machinery or whatever, uh, which of course is is not specifically available for that veteran. But you can you can describe the scene across the board. And uh, and just like you're saying, uh, for at least 12 hours a day while you were on shift, uh, you were standing right next to that noise. Yep, yep, that's right. And it's this is almost all sailors, so it's not. I mean, that are on board an aircraft that are in in, in aviation, so. Well, we won't keep the other guys out of it either, because even if you were on a uh, flight crew that was that was at a at a land air base, uh, you you were exposed to that same type of noise. Um, That's right. And and it's been pretty devastating for guys that worked on aircraft, specifically helicopters and that sort of thing. Uh, that was a, a continuous assault on their on their hearing system, and very few of them have gotten away with without any damage whatsoever. At least the tinnitus is a, uh, is a very common result of, of the injury to, to the inner ear. Well, I so, just wanted to add those things. So. Yeah, those are, that's, I think that's good detail that uh, people should, should be aware of. And of course, uh, 
being in Afghanistan and Iraq and and over in that area, uh, exposure to noise is exposure to noise. They they do have some more uh, focus on uh, personal protection, uh, ear plugs and earmuffs and things like that for people that uh, work on the flight lines and even some of the combat soldiers. But uh, I'm not sure that all that is <clears throat> is so. Uh, extremely protective either. Yeah, that uh, uh, it, it looked like they would come up with a better headgear uh, for these uh, military personnel that would be better protective uh, towards their hearing. Uh, because, like you say, at the, your hearing's very sensitive, and then uh, you get that uh, uh, decimal re- reading up too high, it's going to tear up your ears. There's just no way of getting around it. Yeah, there's no way to avoid that. Uh, there was a uh, uh, an attitude uh, about that stuff Um for instance, on on the destroyer I was on, I was in the forward gun mount uh, as a sight setter, and uh, that was my general quarter station. That's where I was uh, during most gunnery. Um, although I, uh, there were two of each, so you would trade off it, it a lot of times. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's unavoidable, is what it is, and. Uh, and a lot of us have those those hearing problems, like you say. Uh, the, the attitude that I, that I was getting at was that uh, he didn't he didn't really want to. It, it was macho not to have anything, but the um, there was a one-eared uh, radio set that a lot of times you had on that um, would let you listen to the to the chatter, um, and that wasn't uh, one ear that was covered and muffled it was just a piece of plastic that you that you had over your over your head that let you you hear into that chatter if you could hear anything at all so uh, um, the other uh, that goes in hand in hand with a kind of a typical attitude of um, veterans are are not ones that'll tend to want to stay in line and go visit the doctor every time they've got a scratch or a cut or a banging in their head or whatever the um, ringing in their ears that was part of the job he didn't go he didn't go see a medical uh, person about that that was not uh, a thing he did yeah you're right about that and they discouraged it uh, I know when I was in the army there they I mean anyone went on sick call they were a wimp you know, yeah. Yeah. point you out and treat you like a little kid. <laughs> I remember some of them poor guys going on sick call and, and uh, they'd pay for it for several days. Yeah, there was a lot of harassment. And the, the other thing about that was you could go on sick call, but if you had certain work to get done, you just got behind. Uh, yeah, so, yeah uh, that's right. It all it all came back to bite you at some point. Yeah, they made you pay your dues for going on sick call, and uh, uh, yeah, you're gonna get extra detail or something. So they they prey on that, and uh, the veterans pay the price later on down the road because. There's no record of them ever seeking help or uh, this, that, or something else. Uh, you didn't have the flu or nothing. They give you your. We had a, like a medic in the company, and he just handed out them APCs. I think they were called. <laughs> Supposed to catch y'all. Headache. Well, yeah, having salt pills and. Uh... And things like that. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't set up to to 
handle a lot of people going into the doctors at all. There was another thing that uh, that we had talked about the other day, uh, Gerald, that, that I thought maybe we ought to get in here before it <clears throat> closes down. Okay. Uh, and that has to do with the um, the current rules uh, having to do with uh, veterans that need immediate medical attention. Uh, and we are talking about the veterans. Uh, uh, there's a... Um, VA policy that says that if you are in a an emergency situation, and they define that as one where you, the veteran, uh, believe that your life or your health is in danger, um, you can go to a non-VA emergency center uh, for care, and um, you need to. Uh, veterans need to know that uh, they have 72 hours to contact the VA to inform them that uh, that they did or are receiving uh, emergency medical care from a non-VA facility. Theoretically, the VA uh, will pick those costs up. Uh, the thing they have to keep in mind is that uh, if you're eligible for that particular type of service through the VA, then you're eligible for that particular type of service outside the VA on an emergency basis. Uh, if it's a non-service connected problem um, that you have to go to the emergency room for, the VA is probably not going to pick that cost up. But if a veteran finds themselves in a situation where they believe that a service-connected problem is causing them a, a uh, an extreme danger to their life or their health. Uh, they can go to a non-VA medical center and receive treatment, and the VA will reimburse that uh, those costs to the medical facility if the veteran would have. Um, been eligible for that same treatment because of his service connection at a VA hospital. Um, I put up on our uh, Blue Water Navy website uh, some, uh, I think there's a scan of the, the uh, uh, fact sheet on that for for VA health care. Um, a lot of veterans don't know that, that, uh, that that's available to them, but uh, but it is that the VA doesn't guarantee that they'll pick up all or any of the cost, but uh, it's worth the, uh, the knowledge of that in the event that, that you do find yourself in a situation where you think that you need to get to a medical center immediately. John, let me add one thing to that. Let me add one to that. Uh, if you guys do that and you go to an outside provider, to emergency room or to another hospital, um, as long as you're 50% or more, the VA should cover it. There's only one stipulation. It's a pretty big stipulation. If you have private health insurance or Medicare, then the VA will say all bets are off of that. Okay, that's a, that's good to add in there. I wasn't yeah. uh, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Right. So. But that's uh, and that's something that I find that uh, most of the uh, a lot of the veterans that I run into aren't aware that that uh, if they if they feel like they have an emergency they go out of their way to get down to a, a VA hospital um, and in all cases that's not totally necessary. Yeah, and you know if you live a long ways like. To a VA hospital, I live about 120 miles, 125 miles, <coughs> and sometimes it's just not practical to try to drive that far. Right, right. And I have outside insurance with Medicare. Uh, hopefully that don't change much uh, with all this Obamacare thing, but... Uh, it does make a difference, and I'd recommend anyone out there, any veteran 65 or older, to 
uh, utilize their Medicare and get the gap insurance. Uh, that way, if necessary, you can get your medical aid right close to home, and it's all covered. Well, we'd like to see all the veterans stay as healthy as they can, um, and um, so little tricks like that will will definitely help do that. Um, it's really not something the VA has has gone out of their way to let everyone know about. But if you look around enough, there are some some um, places on the VA website. Uh, you could look for one called the Brochure Center, and you'll find things like this uh, non-VA emergency care fact sheet and uh, and others like it that uh, that tell you some of the some of the features that uh, the VA has to offer that uh, that you don't often hear about. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, the VA is not very good about giving all this information out. Of course, I imagine I'd take a pretty thick book, but at any rate, uh, you need to do some research. You know if you're going to be sick down the road or you're kind of sickly anyway and dealing with a bunch of diseases or something, ailments, uh, you need to know what your rights are and what you should do and what you shouldn't do and what you can do and uh, so you have to study up on that a bit. I know whenever I call a medical facility, I always say, if this is an emergency, call 911. <laughs> so they kind of gave you a clue there. Yeah. But, uh, don't hesitate. Uh, get to the uh, nearest hospital you can. Don't wait to go to the VA. All right, that's a good message to to leave them with. That's that's very important. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Don't dilly dally around. You get into the hospital as quick as you can. Any hospital. Don't worry about the bill. And uh, especially if you got Medicare and uh, Gap insurance, that's what I recommend everybody to do have that, at least then you have an option. Sure, we have about two and a half minutes left, buddy. Two and a half minutes. Well, uh, John, give us your uh, uh, website and contact information so if anyone wants to, they can give you a call on the Blue Water Navy and what's going on with it. All right, I'd be glad to. the uh, The website is uh, www.bluewaternavy.org, and on that website, the, probably the best uh, place to uh, keep up with what's been going on is a, one of the first uh, blue buttons, and it's called the update log, and it tells you what the latest thing was that was posted on the website. Uh, in any of the sections on that website, there's a there's a news section, there's a library section, there's a, a discussion board. But that uh, that update log will keep you up to speed on what the latest thing was that was put up there. Uh, to get a hold of me, just uh, use the email address uh, navy at bluewaternavy.org. Uh, I'd be happy to help anyone. We're, we're not uh, only Navy. We've got members that are Army, Marine, Air, Air Force, uh, Coast Guard, whatever. So uh, we are started by a group of Naval offshore veterans, but we provide help and services and, and recommendations to, to any service from any conflict. So please, uh, if you have questions or you need some answers, either email me or visit the uh, website. Well, that's good. Uh, and I'm sure uh, someone will be contacting you. Uh, there's a lot of naval personnel out there. 
you know, I'm sure they can go to your website and find out what ships were involved or, you know, uh, do some legwork there. I know your website's full of a lot of good data. But anyway, hey, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, John, uh, uh, Jay Bass was there. Now, don't get everybody on uh, Friday. Jay Basser's having the Basser Hour, and they're at 10 Eastern time. So uh, be sure to t- tune in then. And uh, this will be Gerald Cook. We'll be signing off there for now for the Haddit website, Haddit Podcast. So tune in again next week.